Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Three women, one podcast, and a whole load of badass. Actually, this week it's two women. Both Emma and Nat are off on holiday, so it's me and Amanda Prowse. We meet the amazing Maggie Oliver. She's the woman who blew the whistle on the Rochdale scandal, and she talks to us about how she's still supporting young women today and trying to change the behaviour of the police. Plus, Amy Jones talks about her new book, The To-Do List, and explains why sometimes a to-do list is not as good as a to-done one. Badass Women's Hour XL with Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell, and Emma Sexton on Talk Radio. One, two, three, four. And we are very excited to welcome to the studio journalist and author Amy Jones, author of the To Do List and other debacles, lessons Woo-hoo! in life, love, and losing my mind. Hello, Amy. Hello. How are you? Good. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming in and joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, now, I love a to do list. I always feel that I've started my day in an immensely productive manner if I start with a list of things I want to achieve. But I am also somebody who makes a lot of lists and doesn't always cross off everything in between them. Why is your book so obsessed with lists? I think because I'm just like you. I don't feel like uh, my day has started right unless I already know exactly what I have to achieve that day. But there's nothing wrong with not ticking everything off. I mean, if you, I think the whole book actually is about the fact that I was putting so much pressure on myself to make sure I was doing everything all the time. You can't do it. And if you try and live your life by you know, how productive you are, you're not gonna, it just makes you miserable. Have you always been a list maker or was it something that happened as you got older? I think my obsession with lists started when um, I moved to London, kind of leaving university, living on my own for the first time, having a career rather than doing a philosophy degree. And just suddenly there was so much that I had to keep in my brain. And I felt like my brain wouldn't keep it all in, you know. I was going to forget things unless I had them down somewhere out of my head. So that's when I started making lists and it's kind of grown from there. Now so I make Did lists. it kind of help you do grown-up stuff then? Was it grown-upping? <laughs> was that what you were trying to say? Adulting, yes. Adulting. I think that's the phrase of the moment. <laughs> that's the one it? I'm looking for, adulting. Yeah, it did. But it also, um, it really helped me feel like I was, you know, that that switch into the real world is such a strange thing. And it helped me feel like I was, I was getting things done, even though I wasn't getting, you know, marks on essays and things. It was okay because I had this list and I was ticking things off and I was, I was still achieving and I was still working mm. and it, it was fine. Um, 
and now it kind of, and then it spiralled into an obsession and I've kind of had to pull it back and now I make my lists work for me. So it was a form of external validation? Basically, yeah. And even now, um, but towards the end of the book, I move on to, I still make my to-do lists because I love having that very clear, this is what I have to do. But I do to-done lists as well. Oh, I like which that. Is, right? So you make a list of even tiny things that you've managed to achieve, like the phone calls or putting the washing in or... And it just, you read back and think, oh, actually, even though today felt like a bit of a waste, I've done loads and you feel much Love better. Love that. That's great. <laughs> what was it like when uh, the to-do list spiralled into an obsession for you? Tell us what that was. I was really beating myself up. I think there's so much pressure nowadays, um, I think particularly for kind of young women or women just kind of making their way in the world mm-hmm. to lean in and be a girl boss and all that kind of thing. And, and you look on social media and everyone else seems to be bossing it constantly. Mm-hmm. And for me... Like I said, I was using my list as a form of external validation and they became the only measure of myself. If I wasn't being productive, if I wasn't, you know, being impressive and putting things on the internet and being fantastic, then I was failing, um, which is not helpful and not what to-do lists should be for. And I was kind of ruining my own life because I was putting so much pressure on myself. I was putting things like social engagements. In the first chapter, I go to brunch with friends and it's on my to-do list as a thing to tick off. I mean, how how sad is that? But it was something I was doing. It was, it became another achievement, another endless task. And that's just not healthy. Gosh, that pressure, isn't it, to constantly be doing it? And as you say, mm. everyone else seems to be totally bossing it. Mm. I think I think it's I think it's part of our, our anxiety that we now live with this fast-paced. We should be doing it all. We should be having it all. And actually, it seems like it's a way that you kept control. Basically, I felt very out of control. And I have um, depression and anxiety. And I was I talk about that very openly in the book as well. And I actually, it flared up badly when I moved to London, mm. kind of coincided with my first list making. And that didn't help, basically. Um, it Comparing myself to others constantly, it was always a way to put myself down. Someone else was always better. It didn't matter what I achieved. Someone else was doing something else and better than me. Do you think that social media plays a part in this? So I used to do on Instagram, and I haven't done it for a while because I also got a little bit tired of it, but I used to do um, a thing on my Instagram every Monday called Five Things, where I would post five things I was going to do that week and you could post your five things and at the end of the week I'd check in on you and see how you'd done. And I found it exhausting and I would have a few weeks where I had none of the things that I had done, well, actually more than a few, none (laughs) of the things on that five things done and I would have to say I actually haven't done any of these. And if you're wondering why I'm not achieving all the things that apparently I should be achieving, it's because I'm not doing any of the stuff on my list. And it was quite... And I really felt that I was looking at other people's social media and being like, mm. oh, they've achieved this, they're doing this. And I was allowing that to influence then what went on my to-do list. Absolutely. If um, if other friends were going to, I don't know, Borough Market and having yeah. a lovely day, why wasn't I going to Borough Market and having a lovely day? If they were... There's a bit, I think, in the middle of the book when I'm kind of at my lowest and I just make it... I'm in a hem party, so surrounded by other women. And I'm like, why am I not pregnant like her? Why don't I have a job as good as her? Why is my hair not like her? Why don't I have a house? Why am I not dressed as well as that? Why am I not as funny as that? And it's... I don't think social media... I'm a big fan of social media in general and kind of for connecting with people. And for me, certainly, it helped me actually deal with my anxieties, kind of opening up and talking about this. But when you are just observing and kind of there is that veneer of perfection across the top, it's it can be really hard, especially if you're already in a slightly so vulnerable place. I guess the message is we need to be a bit kinder to ourselves, don't we? Yes. Take the pressure off, you know. Always. Some days it's a big achievement if I manage to get out my nighty. Absolutely, that <laughs> goes straight on the to-do list. Say, you know. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it's, it, isn't it? It's almost going back to that level where actually just be kinder to yeah. ourselves. I still love working hard and I still love mm. doing things and, and writing books and things <laughs> like that, but it's 
it's no longer my raison d'etre. It's no longer the thing I've, I'm trying to find kind of self-worth and confidence and happiness in just existing. And when I go for brunch with my friends, I'm not thinking, tick, I'm thinking... You're in the moment. I'm in the moment. I'm mindful. <laughs> mindful. Yeah. How did you get to that place? Was it, did you, was it about counselling? Was it about kind of self-realisation? What helped for you? For me, um, therapy and asking for help. I didn't actually realise I was in a bad place. I've, I'm very bad at recognising when things <laughs> have gotten bad. But um, initially it was a friend who was trained to be a doctor who kind of said, I think... I can hear how you're talking about yourself and maybe get some help. And I've had three sets of um, CBT therapy now. And each time I finish and I just, it feels like the world clicks back into place. You know, it it helps me challenge all of these thoughts that I think that we all have, but I let get out of control very, very easily. And yeah, I recommend therapy for anyone. I think I always feel like I'm better now than I was before I was depressed, if that makes sense. The therapy sorted out my brain Mm. and made me more sane than I was Mm. before. So for anyone who doesn't know, CBT is cognitive behavioural therapy and it's really about how we change, how we get in front of our thoughts, isn't Mm -hmm. it? It's how we hear the thought and then rather than instantly acting on it, put a little arrow in and says, hang on, checking on that thought, (laughs) is that right? Do we want to be doing the next thing? And I've done quite a few sets of it. I think it's amazing what was it about CBT for you that kind of, I guess, slowed down your thinking about? I think it was someone um, very gently and kindly saying, mm. Amy, do you really think that person hates you just because they haven't looked at you or something like that? Yeah. It was someone who um, had no emotional connection to me, kind of inserting themselves in the wild tornado that my <laughs> brain can be sometimes and saying, just, you know, take a moment. Do you really think this is what's happening? And they... I mean, it almost, this sounds so trite and I'm sorry, but it's like putting my thoughts in in a list, in an order that was very rational rather than kind of driven by impulse or pure emotion. I'm a very emotional person. (laughs) (laughs) So writing the book, writing a book is a big undertaking. I think everyone I know who's done it, Amanda, you can vouch for this because you've written, I don't know, several thousand. Several thousand. (laughs) Several thousand. It feels like you you start it, you get all excited... You're in the middle of it and it feels like you're suddenly drowning in the weeds and you're never going to get out. <laughs> and then you get to the end and you're like, thank God it's done. Nobody tell me to edit it. Um, yes. <laughs> how did, did writing lists help you write the book? It did, actually. I've now moved on to bullet journaling, which is like <laughs> lists, advanced, like advanced lists, you know. And um, I had a page specially for, you know, each. I had planned it out, very, I had a very clear structure and I had, you know, write write the chapter, edit the chapter, send the chapter off, and I go tick it off and kind of see my progress going. But even so, I was able to put... I do kind of lists for the general week as a whole, and it would be, you know, try and finish this chapter. And again, I did have places definitely in the middle where you were saying where everything feels awful and uh, insurmountable, where I thought, I'm never going to get this done. But it was kind of just chipping away at it and being kind to myself. If If I didn't manage to do it, it's okay. It doesn't make me a bad person. Amanda, are you a list maker? When you're writing, do you no. find do you organise it? Do you no. set it? Do you sit down and write? No, I, n- I never write a list. I never make a plan. <laughs> I never do anything. I just literally, I have the book in my head. I start writing. And I stop when I finished it. But I'm aware that's very <laughs> odd. Teach me your ways, though, because that sounds much better. <laughs> the thing is, Amy, the rest of my life is spiralling way <laughs> out of control. You know, it's like we're knee deep in laundry and everything's going. I just haven't seen the kids or the dogs for weeks. But you know, it's it, actually I can see. I totally relate. If I started making lists, it would become my thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why I don't. 
because if I started writing lists, I would have a list and then the things I didn't do would go on to the next list. That list would be stuck somewhere. I'd look at it in the night. You know, when I go for my three o'clock week, I would literally <laughs> be ticking things off and I can see that it would become, I get very obsessed about things very easily. Mm-hmm. And I sense that's what you're saying. If you had that personality, mm. you too, Harry, I think. Yeah, I would. I'd I can totally see it obsessed. would become a thing. But actually what you're saying is, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just managing it and using it to the best advantage. I think I still love lists. I love to do lists. But now it's about using them to help me and make my life better. I started making them because I felt like I was out of control. There was too much in my brain. And it became too much that I was relying on them to make my life good. Mm. Whereas now I make my list and it's kind of very forcing myself to think, well, I haven't done anything on this list today that's okay and writing my list at set time so I do kind of first thing in the morning and then I have a quick check last thing at night and think okay well that'll go on tomorrow's list and that's okay but actually you're dumping your thoughts into writing you're writing so you actually mm-hmm. you're not just writing lists you're writing whole books which is wonderful and I can't <laughs> wait to read it I should say but actually that's maybe how you're exercising everything that's swirling in your head instead of listing you're writing books I've always been a writer um to kind of just get emotions out my teenage diaries are full of the worst poetry Wonderful. in the world and I fully recommend it for anyone who feels like they're out of control just take yourself down um and I still use this to kind of manage my mental health if I ever feel particularly emotional like I'm out you know I can't I can't cope go somewhere quiet with a pen and a paper and just write everything and you don't have to do anything with it but it's just getting those feelings out it's kind of holding on to it really tightly is what makes makes it feel so huge it's like if someone says don't think about a white elephant you immediately oh. do whereas if it's you've thought about the white elephant you're kind of like okay i'm bored now and you move on <laughs> uh your book is called lessons in life love and losing my mind were you making lists for your love life <laughs> uh, yes <laughs> careful now Emma. Careful. no there is a cha- there are two chapters about my relationship with my husband and um the pressure i felt to have the perfect relationship because you know you see um i'm really obsessed with tom and giovanna fletcher and their incredible oh, relationship yeah. and i was looking at my relationship and thinking well, why am i not like this why don't i have this beautiful country house and why am i not having like pajama nights that all the time i look at amanda's mm. instagram like why do i not have amanda's beautiful house yeah and the, I didn't write it's filthy. It's filthy. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. But in the list, uh, at the start of each chapter, there is a list for what I'm kind of doing in that chapter. In the end, I kind of do an update on how far I got. And the list has things like go for a romantic walk in the park, cook a lovely dinner, oh, have gosh. sex. Because you know, I was I was ticking these things off. Well, you have to schedule it in. I mean, obviously, I mean, we've been married for ten years. Uh, exactly. We've been together for ten years. Yeah, so, yeah very much got to schedule it in. <laughs> Week Thursday, I think, at the moment. <laughs> Good luck. Have yeah, fun. I think enjoy yeah, that. 7.30. <laughs> <laughs> Till 7.35. <laughs> Amy, the book is fabulous. Thank you so much for coming in and talking about it. It's called The To-Do List and Other Debacles, Lessons in Life, Love and Losing My Mind. It's out now. Yes. At all good bookshops, booksellers, etc. Um, if you had one lesson that you would like to give to everyone about life, love and losing your mind, what would it be? Uh, I think you've already said it. Just be kinder to yourself. You have one life. Enjoy it. It doesn't matter if you're not you know the most impressive person in the world just enjoy yourself and be happy brilliant that's brilliant mm. amy jones thank you so mm. much for joining us here on badass no women's hour the vampire strikes back badass women's hour excel on talk radio it's me harriet minter with amanda prowse and we are very I mean, we're kind of excited in, a, in like, awe, in awe <laughs> to have in the studio with us Maggie Oliver. Hello, Maggie. Oh, hello, Harriet. Hello, Mandy. Hello. Thank <laughs> you so much for inviting me on. Thank you for coming uh-huh. in. I mean, I think everyone knows you as the detective who really exposed the Rochdale scandal and forced it to come to justice. And 
you're, you did that and then you have gone on to uh, work on the BBC drama around it, to appear on Celebrity <laughs> Big Brother. Uh, you're setting up a foundation. There is so much that we want to talk to you about. But just to start with, I'd love to take you back to when you were very young and you decided you wanted to become a police <laughs> officer. What was it that you thought you were going to achieve by joining the police? What was it you wanted to do? Well, first of all, I wasn't young. I mean, they say life begins at 40. Well, <laughs> I joined the police when I was... Uh, actually, the, the day I swore my oath of attestation was actually my birthday. And oh. I was 42 years old. Wow. But don't tell anybody. <laughs> um, I don't know. I had four kids and I wanted to do something worthwhile. Um, I wanted a career that would take me through to my retirement and old age. That was the intention. And I also wanted to help kids because... Um, so, for me, the police seemed to tick those boxes. Um, so I joined and, yeah, I, I, I loved my job, you know, but perhaps I was very naive. Um, I believed every word of the oath mm. of attestation, you know, that my job was to act with impartiality and integrity and uphold the law, protect people's human rights, um, to be impartial. But obviously now I see it in a different way. What were the things that really made the sort of, I suppose, the veil to lift and to start you questioning that oath, Maggie? It, it, was, it was watching what it wasn't just uh, Greater Manchester Police, it wasn't just GMP that were ignoring and neglecting their duty to protect these kids. It was police forces throughout the country. And, you know, obviously I'm here because I've written my book mm -hmm. called Survivors. And if anybody um, reads the book, you know, I'm, I'm kind of seen as this one-dimensional character who is just the ex-police officer who blew the whistle but I didn't you know I'm not some bitter and twisted police officer who wanted to make a fuss I just couldn't I couldn't walk away from what I had seen already in 2004 and 5 yeah. um, just at the time when my husband died and the you know my book explains that you know, I was in a bad place and there was a gap in my knowledge between knowing that we had 207 men on a, a database of offenders who were abusing kids. Um, at that point, they were suspects. Yeah. Um, and coming back to work when my husband died and that job had just been buried as though it had never existed. Um, and I asked questions and I tried, but I was just a, a detective. You know, I wasn't the chief constable and um, I was powerless really to do anything and it affected me very badly. Um, How did your husband's death affect you? Did... Um, well, I mean, we'd been together since yeah. I was 20 and he was, he was the love of my life. Mm. Uh, we had four kids together and actually yesterday was the 14th anniversary of his death. Mm. And I actually went to see Celine Dion last night. So <laughs> I was there with all these hundreds and thousands of people blugging, you know, crying my eyes out when she was singing Titanic. And I'm thinking of Norman, <laughs> looking down at me and thinking, you bloody silly woman, <laughs> what are you up to now? But he was a great guy. You know, he supported me every step of the way. And I still feel he's there next to me, um... Mm 
probably shaking his head over and over again, but he was, a, you know, he was a very important part of my life and I was really sad, I was devastated when, when he died yeah. um, of terminal bowel cancer when he was, he was diagnosed when he was 46. So, you know, none of us expect to, you know, die in your 40s. We, we yeah. thought we had many years ahead of us. Um, two of my kids were still at school so it 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 rocked my world, you know, and um thing is, Maggie, I think you know you meet some people in your life and uh, they've been through tragedy and they've had things happen to them. When stuff like that happens, people very often just want to retreat and call under a duvet and not do anything. You did the exact opposite. You had a tragedy in your life, mm-hmm. and instead of just calling under a duvet um and just sleeping or feeling self-indulgent, you found courage that people of much higher rank, in very different positions, didn't find. I, I think you are remarkable. Thank you. I think, um, I just think your story is absolutely incredible. So when you say he was shaking his head, I'm sure he'd be incredibly proud. Oh, yeah. Incredibly <laughs> proud. What do your kids say? My goodness. Oh, my kids are like my world and my two little grandsons, um, Jake and Charlie. Charlie was uh, six on Thursday. Happy birthday, Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> Cheeky. <laughs> and, and I had a little granddaughter, Macy, and in my book I talk about that. She died just before she was three. So, I, you know, I, even though I was a police officer, I mm. felt because I joined at an older age, it gave me an extra dimension yep. to doing the job that I did. I was a family liaison officer. But I always used to say that I'm a you know, a person first and a police officer second. And I think if you join when you're 18, you, you are very, what's the word, malleable. You, yep. you, you know, you are. I had very well-developed ideas about what was right and what was wrong. This was so wrong that I could not, I could not let it go. I just felt that if I didn't speak out, I was as bad as the people who were ignoring it. And um, I did struggle for 18 months working as a police officer, you know, going to work, doing my job, um, until about a year into, you know, maybe about 10 months into it. Um, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't eat. I, my, I was just not, I was just not well. Um, but there was nothing wrong with me. I just couldn't square the circle. And my last day actually at work was... Um, I collapsed on the floor, mm. but it was stress um, because everyone was, not everybody, but I was trying to go through all the ranks and say, look, this is what's happening. This is not right. This isn't what a police officer should do. We've got kids mm. telling us what's going on here. We've got the law there to prosecute these men. Why are we not doing it? Um, and I was just told, you know, you're just a detective, you know, if and, and actually what, finally decided me as I say in my book the the final nail in the coffin was when a a senior officer said to me Maggie the way it works in the police is senior officers make decisions you're a detective constable you do as you're told and if you can't do as you're told maybe you're in the wrong job and I thought because that was my you know I loved it It was my life um I thought well I can't do as I'm told so I really had no choice other than to leave. But um, I'm a strong... I see myself as a strong woman because Norman died and you, you say, I'd, you know, that that was a struggle. But I... 
again, the book talks about um, the nurses at Christie's became really good friends and um, they put the little idea in my head after it died maybe three or four months previously. And um, when I went to the hospital with a, like a box of biscuits, they, I said, you know, I'm struggling with this. I don't know kind of how to deal with it. And, and one of them, it was Julie, went and got this poster and said, well, we've been thinking about you. There's this look. And it was a big poster for beating bowel cancer. And they were doing a charity trek to Borneo. And it would have been... <laughs> it was the, the, the okay. start day was the first, was, was my husband's, would have been Norman's 50th birthday. Oh. And I would have been in Borneo um, one year to the day since he died and it was bowel cancer and I kind of I'm a big one for listening yeah. to my instincts and I thought there's three things there sign. yeah it's a sign um so I you know I did I, I, I grasped the nettle and I, <laughs> and I went to Borneo <laughs> and that was kind of um a, a massive turning point for me it was one of those life-changing moments standing at the top of Mount Kinabalu looking down above the clouds at like six o'clock in the morning and I thought and I had a photograph of Norman which is in the book mm. and I had this photograph and th there's a you know an unflattering picture there with like <laughs> been through the all the the rain and no makeup and a, but holding this little picture and thinking right I'm going to leave this up here and that's where I've come from and I'm going to go down the other side and I am going to try and live my life for the two of us. And it was a, yeah, it was a life-changing moment. And, and I, I actually really want other women listening to, to think, you know, we, we've only got one life. We all go through the mill in one way or another and life can be tough. So whether it's the kids who have been abused mm. or somebody who's lost the husband or has lost the granddaughter or the child or just struggling with life or just struggling yeah. with life you know seek support around you and and believe in yourself and try to piece together something um which is why i'm starting my own the maggie oliver foundation now. yeah we're gonna talk to you about that because i really want to hear more about, about it and i just your story of resilience is so incredible. We've got to ask you how you do it. The Vampire Strikes Back. Badass Women's Hour Excel on Talk Radio. We're having a little dance here in the studio about our swims out with the amazing Maggie Oliver. Maggie, really like fire. That is your theme that tune. That is my anthem and Johnny knows that very well, don't you? Yeah. Why, why do you love that song? Because when Norman died um, and I was in really in the depths of despair, that, I mean, people sometimes say I look a bit like Lulu. You which, do. You do look like Lulu. Which I take as a massive compliment, but... That kind of gave me it, it gave me a little bit of a boost, and I always used to think, right, I'm in. You know, when Lulu comes in and she says this light on the other side, and I used to think I'm in this tunnel and it's black and bleak, but you know, just sort of hang on in there and get to the other side of the tunnel because there is light at the end of every mm -hmm. tunnel, and you know, I was kind of stuck in the middle of it. Um, Borneo was what got me out of that tunnel because I couldn't even bear to think about losing Norman, but Borneo was a distraction. And the, my kids and my friends, you know, um, 
and my work colleagues, they just like gathered around and we, it was a really positive journey. Fun, you know, we did fundraising, we did Norman's Night yeah. where a DJ came and all his friends and all our contacts and the kids' friends and, you know, we had pictures of Norman on this board of everybody who was there and it was just such a, a positive thing. But that song was kind of... Made your hang- anthem. Yeah, yeah, it was my anthem. anthem. And when I was in Big Brother, nobody would dance. And I, you know, when they give you um, a four, uh, like a questionnaire to fill yeah. in, and most of it I wouldn't fill in. I was terrified of them. <laughs> what are they going to do? <laughs> Catching with it? me out. Yeah. But I put that one. That that was my anthem. And then they were trying to get us all going in the party, and nobody would dance. So they put that on, and I had to say to everybody, "Look, you've got to dance to this. This is my song." <laughs> <laughs> you are such a resilient person. I because I really want to understand. You know, even before Rochdale, you worked in the serious crime division of the Great Manchester yeah. Police. So you saw things that the average person is not seeing. Yeah. And then you dealt with the Rochdale scandal. Then you dealt with the disciplinary hearing. Then you dealt with uh, your husband's death, your grandchild's death. It. You have come through a lot. Yeah. Where do you get the resilience from? So even when you're in the really dark places, you still have enough in you to get up and tackle it. I think I think there's a lot of truth in that saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Mm. And if, if you'd spoken to me maybe 20 years ago, you know, I, I would say, like it says on the back of the book, um, I am just an ordinary woman. And life threw me some pretty low balls actually and from from you know I had I had a very very happy we had our problems Norman and I but we had a very happy marriage really um it was solid we were a real team four fabulous kids and we lived a normal life um but I think joining the police was probably the first time I struggled with things and and I really struggled in my probation um I did feel like a a square peg in a round hole and there were um colleagues you know some colleagues but supervisors mm-hmm. who felt that you know I shouldn't be in the job that um I remember being called a, a middle class do-gooder you know <laughs> oh um and I wasn't I wouldn't say I was middle class yeah, anyway yeah. but I definitely wasn't a do-gooder I wanted to do good yeah but that's what police officers should be there for you know I wanted people to to trust me and I think that's why I was I I kind of had a bit of a niche within the job that some of some of the big bosses recognized what my skills were Mm. you know don't put me in a I had to do riot training and all that and (laughs) running up the bloody hills with the big boots on (laughs) which was not really what a 42 year old woman is best at but I did it good training for Borneo then absolutely (laughs) but um but I was there was some of the skills that I had um that an 18 or a 20 year old who can run a marathon doesn't have Mm. and for me good management is about using people's skills absolutely the best teams are when you you know don't put me on cctv because i'm i can't i can barely use a computer um (laughs) don't put me in a riot but you give me a family that has been through um the most horrific experience of the life and i can go in there and i can help them Mm. and i could um gain the trust i could get them to talk to me and you know, because with, of your life skills, not necessarily yeah, your yeah. training. Yeah, and actually, yeah. I, I would say because I don't judge people. Yeah. yeah, it's not my job as a police officer to judge people. It was my job to put away the gad, the bad guys, 
or gather the evidence to put before the courts. And that is what GMP were not doing. Um, they were um, choosing good victims and bad victims and selecting who they were going to prosecute and not. Well, I couldn't stand by and accept that. When you blew the whistle on the uh, Rochdale scandal and when you saw all that evidence in front of you and how it had been ignored or manipulated or just you know, pushed back. I mean, I only watched the TV show and it honestly, it really affected how I trusted people. When yeah. I looked at that and I thought, God, where are the good people in this world? Did you have that experience? Yeah, and, and sadly, yeah. It, it, in many ways, it's destroyed me. Yeah. Because I don't trust the criminal justice system anymore because I have seen at first hand what it has done and I am in regular contact with a lot of the kids still in Rochdale in fact I'm going to see some of them tomorrow with a copy of my book and because the book's out on Thursday yeah. but the last thing I would want is for them not to have it um in advance then they know you know that I will be telling the story from um their perspective really is it different to the drama very different very very different because the you know the drama i always say the drama was a drama the bbc um will only push things so far mm. um there are many things that were not said in the drama they also um uh what should i say i i don't feel that the cps uh, were represented in the way that i see them um they got off very lightly as did mm. the police um Maxine played a character that was actually an amalgamation of many roles within crisis intervention. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it is a drama. But, I, you know, um, given the choice again, I worked on that for four years. And the, the, the drama that was made at the end wasn't the drama I felt we were going to make. But even knowing everything, I'm very proud to have been involved in it. Mm -hmm. And I think it educated the country about yeah. grooming. Massively. Absolutely. Yeah. Massive. And actually what it's done, it's allowed me in these kind of conversations now to use that as a springboard because everybody knows what grooming is. Mm -hmm. And now I'm trying to take the conversation to the next level and talk about the failures that I've seen since Rochdale, what the mm -hmm. kids are going through now and that there is no help for them, that they have been abandoned still by society that's why i'm starting the maggie oliver foundation and if yeah. if anybody wants to we it's all in the process the, the the website is there now which is um com. i've got um a launch event on the 21st of july um uh, an afternoon tea at Shrigley Hall in, in Cheshire. All that's in the back of the book. But the, the foundation is to... I want a national network of Maggie Oliver centres. The mm. first one is going to be in Rochdale. So I want people... What I've said in my book is if everybody who watched the drama gave a pound, we would have £9 million and I would make that money work for those kids. I want mm. a centre that is all-inclusive for, for not just survivors of grooming, but for survivors of all faiths, all backgrounds. Mm. So a girl who's been in, forced into a marriage in her community, I want them to have a place to come. Or somebody who's been subjected to, you know, FGM or a child who's been It's like groomed. a safe house, Maggie. Yeah, but yeah. with access, with... Um, with I'm going to 
have counsellors there, legal advice, um, mentors. So girls who have come through this, they now want to put something back. They can hold the hand of somebody who's right, you know, going through it now. I want every child who I've support, every child who I can't support because I can't physically do it myself, I want them all to have somebody like me who can just hold the hand. And my logo is like, a, it's pink and purple, <laughs> but it's um, a hand with a heart in. And I want somebody to hold their hand until they're strong enough to, to carry on themselves. And so I'm trying to... And, the, and the, the line underneath is transforming pain into power because I've tried to change, transform my pain into power and the kids that, the girls that I've supported are well on that road. You know, they are moving forward with their lives. It doesn't take, um, you know, it doesn't take, it's not brain surgery to know that they just need somebody to help them through the, the tough times but it's really interesting because you say it's not brain surgery and you say, I'm an ordinary person. But something was really interesting to me when you walked into the studio and you said hello to us and you gave both Amanda and me a big hug. Wonderful And it was hug. a genuine hug. <laughs> and I was like, that's, uh, that's not something that everybody does. That's not an ordinary person. The ability to spread that warmth the second you walk into a room is not Instinctively. an ordinary You just thing. do it. Yeah. I, I love, but that I love that. I love the... I mean, that's what I would say about the drama as well. Leslie mm. Sharp played me and she's a great actress. But she's not me, and you know. I mean, yeah. these girls, I would, I still do squeeze them to death because, you know, human contact is. Mm. You don't have to use words. Smile is, you know, says a thousand words, and a hug's the same. And you can feel somebody's warmth if you just step over the little boundary a little bit and try and. And I get a lot out of it. Mm. Yeah. You know, I like to connect with people and do my best and. So that's where my next chapter's going. But um, the book I, is called Survivors, and these girls are obviously survivors. Definitely. Do you see yourself as a survivor? Yeah, I do. Mm. Um, I do see myself. I mean, I wear a bracelet all the time that says she believed she could, so she did. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> and you know, self. You, you you've just got to try to overcome what life throws at you because. We have one life, and I want I want my kids to remember me for being positive, and you know I love them, and but not everybody has a, a mum who does that, who is strong enough to fight their corner, and I think the problem with these with some of these kids, they were written off because mm. they are. It isn't just in grooming; it's it's other things like Grenville Towers or like in yeah. Hillsborough, I do feel that there's a, you know, it's a them and us scenario. And the people at the top, and I mean politicians and, yeah. you know, the Home Office and the Prime Minister and Chief Constables, they see people like me and ordinary people as an underclass and they will write them off because they think they can. Well, they're not going to write me off. And, you know, I was a lot harder to bat off than these kids, mm. you know, and I've toughened up a lot. But when you're telling the truth and you believe what you're saying, actually, and you've overcome... I thought I would go to prison. I really was... At one point, I was really... I was, you know, threatened with data protection and you mustn't say what you know. This You're a, you're a police officer. What you know, you have 
um, learnt in the course of doing your job and be very careful, what, you know, wagging fingers and in writing. Um, but once you have accepted that, then the truth is quite liberating. And whatever people say about me, that is the truth. You know, every word is the truth. I am not lying. I couldn't lie. I can't remember anything. <laughs> <laughs> so it is the truth. And um, I'm just trying to give these kids a voice because I'm a lot harder to write off than one of them who perhaps swears and perhaps, you know, has dropped out of school because they've been failed by the authorities. You know, they're very easy to dismiss or say, you know, they've asked, you know, what, what the authorities said. They were making a lifestyle choice. You know, they are one. I mean, in my book, it tells you of, of one officer who said to me personally when I exploded, Maggie, look, let's be right. What would these kids ever contribute to society? They should have been drowned at birth. <gasps> and that is the God's honest truth. And somebody who has got those kind of attitudes to be in a position of influence and power is a mm. very scary place to be. Lord. Um, so we're going to keep talking about Maggie's book here on Badass Women's Hour XL. Badass Women's Hour XL on Talk Radio. She'll get you talking. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We are talking to Maggie Oliver, the detective who blew the whistle on the Rochdale child abuse scandal about her new book, Survivors. Um, Maggie, where are you now with your story? You're setting up the foundation, you've just written your book. How do you feel you are still very in it, very involved in it? Yeah. I don't think this will ever not be part of my life. Mm. Um, I feel that by allowing all my learning to just fizzle away. Um, I want to change things for every kid in the country who has been failed by the system because the support is not there for any of them. You know, even trying to get um, criminal injuries compensation for, for these girls. I mean, we are 
six years on, some of them are still fighting for that. You know, the Legal Aid Agency is actually, in my opinion, disgraceful. Mm. You know, um, we, I go and take the girls to the bank to get a statement. You send it off to the legal aid and then they want another one, you know, for another month and then they'll question what's that amount and what's that. You know, one girl was is like running a catalogue. It is like pulling teeth and yet I turn around and I see, like, the four guys who have been stripped of the British passports, the abusers, have long since out of prison. You know, they've served yeah. two, three years for, for the dozens of rapes which the cps selected a very small um uh what's the word a, a, they selected a couple of charges to to throw at these men they're out of prison you know they have had millions of pounds in taxpayers money to fight extradition back to pakistan and yet i see the kids struggling you know, just to justify a few quid that's gone into the bank, it is all wrong and it's buried and hidden under the, you know, under the carpet. Um, I'm trying to keep these things alive and I'm a hope... I am going to change things. And the centres, the, the Maggie Oliver, it, it will start in Rochdale, but I want to attract... Um, experts in those fields so a lawyer who really I mean, I'm working with Harriet Wistrich who is a fantastic um, she set up the Centre for Women's Justice and she won the John Warboys, the Black Cab Rapist case so you know experts who can guide where these kids go so whether it's counselling they need, whether it's someone to hold the hand, whether it's legal advice I actually have contacts who will now put together a case for the police so you know a, a child on their own may go to the police and be say, "Well, sorry, there's not enough evidence to do anything with that." Well, uh, an independent company and ex-colleagues will put together a package. They'll interview the child with somebody who really understands what they're doing, and they will gather the evidence and hand the package to the police and say, "Well, there you are." You and it's not the fault of individual police officers; it's the the politicians who are not funding the police properly. Mm. My problem with chief constables is that they have you know laid down and let the government trample all over them. they should be shouting from the rooftops that we do not have enough money we do not have enough police officers we're not getting the training that we need anymore that is where a lot of this you know, it spreads to everything mm -hmm. you know knife crime and you know you report a burglary and you get a crime number um, and yet, you know, you, you, you talk on your mobile phone and you, you, you it's easy targets that they are going for. The bad guys are increasingly getting away scot-free. Yeah. So there's lots of facets to this that um, I want to continue to talk about. I want change to come. I see my the, the foundation as um, a centre of excellence, really, um, to support the kids, to give them a voice, but a centre of learning as well that's all-inclusive um, for, you know, survivors from different backgrounds. Um, so it's a big... I want a, I want a centre in every town and city in the country. Mm. Um, I need corporate sponsorship. I need public funding. We need donations, but um, unfortunately, that is what's needed I can't, I don't even have a job anymore, but I do know what's needed. And if I don't try to do this, then I will feel that I haven't done my best. If anyone can do it, Maggie. I think so. And I, you, can. you know, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, oh, yes, we should be doing that, don't, don't think about it. Go do it. Mm. Go do it. Go donate. It is important. And 
I just, I really want to commend your determination and also the fact that you haven't said, you know what, I've done enough now. Yeah. That you are, haven't no, said, you know just... what, I've done quite a lot, really. I've achieved quite a lot. I've fought a lot of justice. I can, you know, my piece here is done. The fact that you continue to fight and you continue to demand improvement and demand that we treat young girls better is... I mean, it is honestly making me emotional. Thank you so much for doing that. Absolutely. It's truly inspirational. I can see why someone wanted you to be an MP because I'd vote for you, Maggie, tomorrow. Um, I'd be too difficult. (laughs) Amazing. Just Um, amazing. Yeah, it's just... And I think that once you get into some... I've just said to you when we were off air, I think once you align yourself with something, then I won't be able to say exactly what I feel and what I believe and what I've learnt. So it's sometimes quite a lonely path, but there are people around me who, my friends and my kids and, you know, um, like Becky, who's helped me set up the foundation, um, Diana Porter, who set up Fresh Start New Beginnings, a charity in, um, in Nor- Norwich and Ipswich. She has been inspirational as well because her charity is a little charity. So there are a lot of good people out there. Um, I think there's strength in numbers, though, and, and if yeah. we pull everything together, um, we can make the changes that we need. We can. Maggie Oliver, thank you so much for joining us. Thank Maggie you Foundation so much. is up and running now. Go donate to it. Uh, Survivor's new book is out on Thursday. It's an incredible, incredible read. You oh, are you. an amazing... Thank you. Thank you for having me on. This has been the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton. If you want to hear more from us, you can come follow us on social media at Badass Women's Hour HR um, or leave us a review and tell us how much you love us. We really need to feel the love. Five stars should do it. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.